Okay, well, guess what? In God's sovereign will, as we talk about God's free will, of my own free will, uh, we uh, today I was actually going to start the minor prophet with you, um, but here's what I'm going to do just for one day today. So much of this happened that I had to go, Lord, you're just trying to put something in my, my head here. So we've talked on God's free will about this idea of free will and last two weeks. I wanted to kind of explore that topically before we got back into Minor Prophets. I told you when we stopped Minor Prophets, I would do one on the family and did a very robust series on that. And then we, um, and then I told you we were going to do one on free will, really try to answer that question, help thread the needle on that one for you. And as I walked away last week, the one thing that said to my mind, I said, Lord, I don't know if I've talked in a while about how to even discern God's will, how to discern God's will. We talked about free will, but how to, how to discern God's will. And I just kind of said to myself, well, I've talked about it in the past and make it kind of clearly evident, Lord, if I should at least kind of throw that in here on the backside. Um, and then before I knew it, before Monday night had ended, I'd had multiple, um, I'd had multiple questions about discerning God's will for one's life. And so I thought, okay, maybe we've got some new people around, um, or maybe we just need to, uh, uh, to rehash. So uh, let's talk about this. And by the way, to let you know, almost weekly, I talk about this subject matter with somebody, about how to discern God's will. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Then we'll be back uh, in the Minor Prophets next week. So free will, the last two weeks. Now let's just talk about how to discern God's will for your life, how to do this. Take your Bible and do first we, 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 two doctrines. Now, there's this big thing that sometimes people go, oh, doctrine, you Christians and your doctrine, doctrine. It, 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 um, it's so stuffy. But no, actually, the word doctrine means you're teaching. And actually, doctrine forms out actually how you actually think through things in life. So there are two big doctrines. If you're going to understand how do I discern God's will for my life, You've got to know two really, really big, important doctrines. And if you know these two doctrines, these really, really important doctrines, then I am confident, my friend, that whatever decisions you make in your life, you'll be making decisions in God's will that you don't have to doubt. Wouldn't that be awesome to be able to make decisions and not fear that you're making the wrong decision? Wouldn't that be awesome if we had some kind of assurance from Scripture that you could do something, you could discern what God wants for your life, and then you can make that decision and be confident that you've made the right decision. Wouldn't that be awesome? Well, the Bible gives us that. It actually does. Now, first, let me give you some principles, some doctrine that you have to believe that's going to set up what I'm about to tell you. Two doctrines. The first doctrine is you can make wise, you can make the right decisions, you can discern God's will for your life if, number one, you believe in the doctrine of what we call the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. The Scriptures are sufficient. Now, sometimes when we, you hear that word sufficient, sometimes people think um, that's not a very robust word, like, it, like the Bible is sufficient just at a minimum level. But that word actually is, is intended to let you know that the Bible is, when we say it's sufficient, we're saying it is superior. It is authoritative. So you've got to know that the Bible is sufficient, authoritative, superior. 
Number two is you've got to believe that God is sovereign. Now, we've already talked about God's sovereignty the last two weeks, so I won't spend a ton of time on that. But I want to look at this first doctrine of are the, the, the sufficiency of Scripture or the superiority of Scripture, the authority of Scripture. If you know that, if you believe that, then, my friends, you can walk out of here today knowing this, that when you make a decision, all the decisions you make will be in God's will. And you might be like, man, Nick, that is a huge promise to make. Well, I can make you that promise because I can show you in the text of Scripture that that is a true promise. So let me do this first. Go over to 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. So to frame out how to discern God's will for your life, you must first understand this doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. And then once you have that, you can be confident in the decisions you make in life if you believe that God is sovereign. Now, first let's look at this doctrine of the... By the way, this is kind of introduction, but this is introduction of doctrine. The sufficiency of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16. If there was ever verses that I would encourage you to memorize, please memorize these. 2 Timothy 3.16. Here's what it says in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Word of God makes a promise that the Word of God itself helps you to know what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, how to stay right. Now let's break down these two verses just doctrinally so that we have a framework of how to make decisions that, that we that have how to discern God's will for our lives. Let's take a look at it. Look at verse 16. We're going to break this down a little bit. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, in, when, you, when this was written, the, by the way, just when you interpret the Bible, you don't ever ask this question. Here's what a lot of people do when they interpret the Bible. They start with this idea of, well... This is what this verse means to me. Or I feel like this verse means this. Please, take that idea, write it on a piece of paper, real nice and neat. Then take that piece of paper and wad it up into a ball and throw it in the trash. That's what you can do with that idea. The question we ask when we interpret the Bible is, what did this mean to the original recipient? What was going on historically at this moment? Original recipient, historically, what's happening with the original language, the Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, what, that's what we're asking. We ask, what's the context of this book that that scripture is in? What's the context of this in light of the whole Bible? So we have, it says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Now, when it says all scripture at this time, at this point, of course, the Old Testament was already completed. So this has reference to the Old Testament. But also, we, you, have, you had several of your New Testament books were already written, several New Testament books. About 18 of them, historically, were written already at this point. Now, the circulation of them, that's something that I'm not quite sure of, but at least 18 of your New Testament books were already written and starting to circulate. Now, so when this was written, this obviously meant the Old Testament and would have also clued in to what New Testament books, but would also apply for any future New Testament books. All Scripture, all 66 books in this Bible, all Scripture. 
Now, it says all Scripture is breathed out by God. That word breathed out is theonutos. It means that God guided, God breathed to, his, to those who were writing these 40-some-odd different authors for these 66 books of the Bible. God breathed out. They wrote the very words that God wanted them to write. People would say, so did they write like a robot? Like, well, I, I don't know that. I would say this, that you, you can read the scriptures and know that each writer had unique aspects to their writing that you can see. So God used their natural giftings, but also God guided them. He superintended. Something that we talk about a, a lot, uh, like doctrinally, is this idea of what's called verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal means God guided, God spoke to them what was to be written. But yet God used their unique gifts and abilities and reasoning and the humanity. And, but the, he, all that they wrote was exactly in the original manuscripts what God wanted them to write. You don't have to turn over to this, but Second Peter 1.20 says, know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from anyone's interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God carried along these men as they wrote, these 40 different authors, these 66 books, carried them along, inspired them from God. People say all the time, I want to hear the voice of God. There you go. If you've ever said like, oh, if I could just hear your voice like, like Moses heard when he got the Ten Commandments, if I could just hear that. There you go, my friends, right here. You and I can hear the voice of God right here every single day. So the Bible says and claims of itself that it is inspired by God. It's breathed out by God. All scripture is. Some people will go, well, only the red parts that Jesus spoke. That's inspired, right? No, the whole entire book is inspired. All of it is God's word. So now people at this point would say, what about Bible translations? Ah, ha, 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 Nick. Some Bible translations aren't good Bible translations. Or what if someone corrupts? What if these translators have corrupted? Does that mean that God's word is null and void? And I would go, no. When we say God's, the Bible is inerrant, we, we usually say the Bible is inerrant in its original manuscripts, like the first copy of 2 Timothy. That, was, that is accurate and true. Now, some people would go, well, I'll believe the Bible if I can have that first copy from Paul's hand of 2 Timothy. I'll believe it then. And then I would go, that does not exist today. Why does it not exist? Because paper from that long ago, after oxygenation, would not exist. It would crumble up, okay? If, if um, I was one time got to go visit uh, one of these um, U.S. Mint printing places uh, in the Dallas area. They have one at Fort Worth. And I remember going through the tour, and in one part of the tour, there was this person at a desk behind kind of this plexiglass, and this person was, was piecing together uh, currency. And actually on the table, this person was piecing together currency to reissue it because someone had found a couple thousand dollars uh, in their grandparents, behind their grandparents' heater in the wall after they kind of sold the house. But when they took the money out, it started to instantly decay and fragment. So they were piecing it back together. Why? Because their paper only lasts, you know, so long. So we don't have the original first, second, 
Timothy. But here's what we do have. Copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. And we have faithful copies of those originals. And don't think to yourself, well, that they could have corrupted that. Like, no, because a copy got made. Then someone went over here and took, like, two copies get made of 2 Timothy. And then someone comes over here at different parts in different regions and makes more copies. And then what happens is, hundreds of years later, we start to unearth those archaeologically and then start to compare them against each other and go, wait a minute, God has preserved his word. Wait a minute, these copies are meticulously copied. Wait a minute, God's word is preserved. So I can tell you this, today you still do have accurate, uh, you, we have God's word in our hands in the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic manuscripts. Now, you might be saying, well, then good, Nick, I can leave right now because how can I discern God's will? Because I don't read Greek. Well, I would say this, the translations that you have, most of them are faithful translations. Like this ESV, good, faithful translation. New King James, King James, NASB, they're all literal translations, good translations. I'm not going to name every translation out there. But we have, for the most part, by and large, from our literal translations, are very good, very wise, taking the original manuscripts and, in, and putting them in language for whatever audience it intends. So when we say that all Scripture is breathed out by God, we're saying in the original manuscripts, and we're saying that we believe that God verbally inspired that. And I would say, still say today that they, it has been accurately preserved for us. We see, all sorts of, we see all sorts of manuscript evidence of that. So we know that we have what is from God breathed out, all Scripture. Now, look in verse 16. He says this about Scripture. It is profitable. That word profitable means beneficial, advantageous, a superior resource. Yes, if you know the word of God, you are the best counselor in the room. Listen to me. Online, listen to me. Here, listen to me. Just listen to me. I am not against counseling. Love counseling. Love it so much I went and got a degree. But I would caution you to ever sit down and let someone counsel you who, is, who does not believe that the word of God is sufficient. In fact, you're kind of like, what should I do when I go vet a counselor for my life? Here's what you do. The very first question you ask them is, do you believe the Bible is sufficient? If they balk on that, walk out. I'm telling you, walk out. Walk out. If they go, well, the Bible is God's love book and it contains God's word, walk out. Walk out. The sufficiency of Scripture. The authority of Scripture. Now, we find here it says this. It's profitable. Superior, beneficial. It's a superior resource. The Bible claims to be that of itself. And here's what it does. It says that the Bible will help us. All scripture will help us for teaching. That word teaching means instruction to know what's right. You want to know what's right in life? The Bible tells us what's right in life. Not our feelings. Right now we live in a culture now. It used to be there was no such, there was no thing as real truth, postmodernism. Now what's going around in our culture is our feelings are what dictate truth. Even, even right now, the way our culture is working, it's truth is whatever I feel that truth is. So you could have had a conversation with somebody and you meant no malice in your heart towards them. But the way our culture is kind of leaning is I could talk to you and have no malice in my heart to you in just a general conversation. But if you feel like I did, then that's truth. Man, that is so brittle and flimsy. How will you ever have a good relationship with that kind of junk? So he says this. 
it's profitable for teaching. Teaching, it shows you instruction, what's right. The Greek word didasko, it's instructionary. Shows you what's right. The Bible shows us what's right. No matter what we feel, the Bible is superior to our feelings. It's superior to our own human rationing if it contradicts the scripture. So it's profitable for teaching. That's what's right. It's profitable for next, it says, reproof. That word reproof is this idea of rebuking or convicting. It's telling you what's wrong. So the Bible has this, it tells you what's right, then it tells you what's wrong. By the way, we don't like that, do we? (laughs) We don't like that, do we? But yet, if you love the Lord, you do. That's what makes this so amazing. Sometimes, like this past week, it it was such a great time of worship where you can read news cycles and you can kind of tell like, man, people are so messed up and don't have true north. Lord, thank you for your word. Like the rest of the world is struggling on how to make decisions, how to view themselves, their identity, even their gender, even their sexuality. Like even, I mean, like tossed and turned. But yet your word says, here's what's right. Here's what's wrong. And it makes life so much more simple. So he says, it's for teaching to know what's right, for reproof, to know what's wrong, to know, to know how to be, convict, to be convicted. By the way, if you're kind of like, man, I, I need some conviction of the Lord in my life, the Holy Spirit will do it if you just put your nose in the book. Then it says for correction. This word correction has this idea of repairing, setting right, kind of like a bone that's been broken and needs to be set right, this correction. So the Bible tells you what's right, what's wrong, then it's a correction, it's a restoring, it shows you how to get right. So the Bible tells you what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, and last it says this, for training in righteousness, training in righteousness, that is basically to discipline us on what's right. So it basically how to stay right. So the Bible says it is profitable for Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. I basically up by saying it shows you what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, and then how to stay right. Which sometimes is much harder, isn't it? It's one thing to know what's right, to repent, to get where God wants you to be, but then to stay in that and not go backwards very hard. But the Word of God actually is there to help us to actually do that, to stay right. So we, here's what the, the Word of God claims, exclusive of itself, It is the superior source. It's profitable. It tells you all things that you need to know, either in principle or precept. It gives you everything. And here's what I mean by principle and precept. Precept in the Bible is something that is is black and white. For instance, the Bible has clear precepts that you should not steal. You should give, okay? Don't steal, give. Precepts in the Bible, like don't lie, but tell truth. Precepts in the Bible, love God, love others. Precepts in the Bible, love God, don't love money. Precepts in the Bible, don't be be anxious, but trust God's character. Prayerfully be thankful, okay? So the Bible has precepts that are very black and white all throughout Scripture. And sometimes the Bible um, has principles, not sometimes, it has principles all over the place. The Bible gives us principles to kind of look at God's Word. So for instance, the Bible doesn't issue every situation in life. So there's Great precepts that give a lot of guidance, honestly. I mean, if you're looking at the Ten Commandments, God's moral commandments, if, you, if we could but 
take those and apply those to our life, almost every decision in life will be filtered well just through the Ten Commandments alone. But sometimes you've got some great areas and decisions to make in life. For instance, let's say that you want to buy a luxury item for your life. And you're wondering, should I do this or should I not? There's no warning that says you, you should not have a new car. There's no precept. Uh, I don't read about cars in here. If, if they did, that'd be pretty messed up. They didn't have cars. They wouldn't have anywhere to drive them probably. That'd be the biggest deal. So nothing in here about can I buy this car, this luxury car. Can I buy this sports car? There are principles though that guide that. There are principles all throughout scripture. Can you afford it? Do you have to over leverage yourself? Is this purchase being made out of an, an idolatrous heart? Is this going to create discord within your family? I mean, all sorts of principles. No precept on that one, but principles. The Word of God gives us precepts and principles, gives us all, everything we need to know what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, how to stay right. All sorts of principles. All sorts of precepts. Now notice what the Word of God says in all these aspects. The sufficiency of Scripture. That the man of God, and although it doesn't say, you know, woman here, it's talking about everybody, okay? That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Notice this word complete and equipped. This word complete means fully capable. Fully capable. This word Equip means to bring to completion, to bring to completion, to finish the course. So the Bible of itself claims to be a sufficient, superior, authoritative way that we can actually live life. All scripture, it's breathed out by God. It shows us what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, how to stay right, so that we can be complete and able to finish and do what God wants us to do in every good work. That's pretty I mean, that's a pretty large thing that the Word of God says about itself. By the way, this is why I have, in 2021, have been so much on, man, let's get into the Word. Get a Bible reading plan. If you don't have one, follow along with me. One year chronology Bible reading. Okay, we're in Exodus right now. Um, I'm uploading videos. I'm actually about two days behind. But I'm uploading videos as as I get time and, and showing you and talking about what I've gotten in that text. I mean, I, I, here's the thing. You'll never be able to make wise decisions in life if you don't know the scriptures. We'll never be able to make wise decisions in life and discern God's will properly if we don't know the scriptures. We've got to be in the scriptures every single day. If you don't have a Bible reading plan of some source, a Bible study plan, you better get one because if you don't make a plan, you plan to fail. And, and all I've been a Christian uh, now for 25 years. And I will tell you this, I have not seen Christians read, study, and immerse themselves in the scriptures that did not have some kind of plan to follow. Now you might be going, oh man, you know, I did start a plan on January 1, and now I'm about 10 days behind, and ooh, I'm just discouraged. Fine, fine, do this. Just, you know, today's what, the 7th? Just start where that plan is on the 7th. Like, forget about the past, press forward to the future, just today's a new day. And just start today on whatever that plan says on the 7th. Commit yourself to it. Why? Because this is how you'll discern to make wise decisions in life if you know God's word. Whoever knows God's word is the best decision maker. Now, now that you know that, God is, uh, that God's word is sufficient, authoritative, superior, hold that doctrine. And then let me just 
quickly say something about God's sovereignty. Then I'm going to kind of lead you through discerning God's will. So the sufficiency of Scripture is the frame, and God's sovereignty gives us the confidence that the decisions we're making are the right decisions. Let me read from Isaiah 46, 8 through 11, once again, speaking of God's sovereignty. It says this, God says this, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God. This is Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. And there is no one other. I am God. There is none like me declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purposes. Verse 11, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man, uh, the man uh, that man may counsel from a far country, I've spoken and I will bring it to pass. It's amazing. God is so sovereign. I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. I have spoken a lot of things I could never bring to pass. Bring it, I have purposed, and I will do it. There's a lot of things I've purposed, and I've never been able to bring about the doing of it. But that's not God. All he wants to bring about, he does. So, if we know that God's word is sufficient, superior, authoritative, Whoever knows the word will be able to make the best discerning decisions of discerning God's will for their life. And if you believe that he is sovereign, you'll have confidence in those decisions. Now let's kind of look at the framework. So a couple things. If you're a note taker, a couple phrases I'm going to give you, and then this will kind of frame out how to view this message. And then, if God sovereignly decrees, we will start Minor Prophets next week, right? Don't y'all love that? Still sovereign. I will... It will never be, here's number one, it will never be God's will to go against his biblical will. You got to know that first. So it'll never be God's will for you to go against his biblical will. It'll never be his will to go against his biblical will. God's, what is sinful, God has clearly revealed in scripture and whatever God has declared is sinful and wrong. That's a really easy one. If you've got options on the table and you're wanting to go like, should I, should I do not do this? If Scripture speaks to it and Scripture says no, that's an easy one. You mark it off. That is not God's will. Let me show you, let me give you a frame of reference for this that you're familiar with. Go to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. We're in the garden. This is before the fall. God has given instruction to Adam. He's to give this instruction to Eve. To... Not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but to eat of all the trees of the garden, except that one. Notice this in verse 15. Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God took the man, he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Notice that. Every tree of the garden. Hold that in your mind. Then he said in verse 17, but of the tree... Of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So clearly we see this. God's biblical will here was easy to discern. Don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's very simple. It's right here. So there's no deviating from this. There's, there's, no, there's no way around it. Just don't eat from that tree. 
That's God's will. That is God's, although Bible wasn't created yet, but if we're talking about God's word being, uh, the Bible being God's word, this is God's biblical, this is his word. So for instance, it'll never be God's will to break a commandment. It'll never be God's will to say to yourself, uh, I don't have a responsibility to make disciples. It'll never be God's will for you to be selfish. I.e., I heard three times this past week of Christians saying, um, I just need to have more self-esteem in life. Like, well, that's not God's will, okay? That's selfish. It'll never be God's will to divorce for unbiblical reasons. It'll never be God's will to steal from your place of work. It'll never be God's will to dishonor your parents. It'll never be God's will to have any sexual activity in your life outside of the covenant of marriage. I mean, these are God's, I mean, clear things that God has spoken just in general in the scriptures, right? So Adam was said, was told, hey, you and Eve, don't eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil. So that's number one. It'll never be God's will to do something that's outside of his biblical will. So if the Bible has said no, then it's no. And I'll tell you what I've had. I've had single people sometimes struggle with this. Man, they'll struggle with it. They'll kind of go, man, it's really expensive to live on my own. And, you know, man, I met this really great guy. And uh, man, I've been dating him for a couple months. And I'm just really not sure if we get... I'm not sure that I would even like him if we were married. So, you know, I know what God's word says. However, man, we're, we're just going to go ahead and start living together and just kind of see if this works. And, you know, the Lord knows my heart. I'm a good person. You know, Nick, what do you think about this? Is this God's will? No, it's not because it's so clear. Like, we don't get to do that. So if you now, if you want to make an unwise decision, go, go for it. But if you want to make a wise discerning decision, what is God's will? And you're asking that. No, it, what does the scripture say? Block out all the unbiblical options on the table. Now, here's number two. Number two, if you're taking notes, once you are in God's biblical will, there can be many options. Many options. Notice in chapter 2, verse 15. I'm um, 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of what trees of the garden? What? Every. All. So here's the deal. Once you're in God's biblical will, you actually have many options. Oh, yes. You know there can be many options. I mean, God has sovereignly decreed the options, but that's not your part. You're not sovereign. You don't need to know that part. All you need to know is this. I have to box out all the unbiblical options. Then whatever options are on the table that are within his biblical will, I have freedom and preference to choose. So Adam and Eve, here's the knowledge of the tree and good and evil. Don't eat of this tree. Do you think they had to ask God about eating from this tree or that tree or this tree or that tree? No, because what did God say? Eat from them freely. I'm going to give you lots of options. There's lots of preferences. You know, I hear people sometimes go like, hey, does God have one soulmate for my life, for marriage? And, and that one and only person, I would go, well, no, actually, there actually could be many options out there. What you have to do is you have to opt out all the unbiblical options, which would be this. If you're in Christ, you wouldn't want to marry someone that would not be a follower of Jesus, that it would be an unequally yoked home. That's scriptural principle. So let's hypothetically, not that this ever really exists, but let's be hypothetical here, shall we? Let's say a man had three women that wanted to marry him, okay? 
don't go too far into my illustration because then you're wondering, like, what kind of player is this, all right? But just back up and let's just go flat surface here. There's a guy that has three options. Three women want to marry him. Two are genuine, blood-bought followers of Jesus, love Jesus, no, understand marriage, want to commit to the covenant, and, and nothing unethical um, that he could see in their lives that would prohibit a marriage from them. The third girl is not a follower of Jesus and is, is not changing that. She's not a follower. What does this guy do? Well, it's really easy first. He's like, well, which decision? Let's say he likes all three girls, okay? This is, maybe this is the downfall of having, of, you know, having apps, all right? You, too many options, I don't know. But let's say that this guy goes, okay, what should I do, Lord? Like, oh, you know, I don't want to make the wrong decision. I would say first, box out all the unbiblical options, which is obviously the unbelieving girl. It's not God's will for your life. That, that cannot happen. Now you've got two. And what would I tell this guy at this moment? I would say, what do you want to do? Like, what, what is your preference here? I mean, like Adam was told, box out what was unbiblical, which is eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Then God said, all these trees I've given you, there's lots of options. That's why I tell people, you don't have like one soulmate. Now, on a side note, once you've married that person, then yeah, that's your soulmate, right? But from my perspective, you don't walk around going, I need to find my soulmate. I need to pick my soulmate ahead of time. Like that's more, that's more than what you uh, possess in your ability. Let me give you, for, for example, Cindy. Can I say today that Cindy is my soulmate? Yeah, because we've been married 20 years this summer and God had sovereignly decreed that this is the, the girl that I would marry. Before I married Cindy, before I said I do, could I say that she was God's sovereign decreed will for me? Couldn't, not, not, not realistically with what I see sovereignty of God in scripture. But was there anything unbiblical in making that decision? No. So I was free to make that decision, okay? But I can say now, looking back, you can oftentimes see God's sovereign hand. I can go, God, this was of your sovereign decree. This is the person who I'm responsible to mingle souls with. And by the way, if you're kind of here today and you're thinking, you're online and you're like, well, I don't think my spouse and I are soulmates and we said I do. Well, guess what? You better start trying. Like now it's time to start working on it. Okay, mingle your souls between you and Jesus. I guarantee you, you and your spouse put your face in the book. Your marriage will get better. You get better. Maybe you stop bickering so much and start reading the word together. You might find something might change for you pretty quick. By the way, never ever have I had a couple come to me fighting like cats and dogs and had a daily time of worship in the scriptures with each other. Hadn't happened yet. I mean, could. Hadn't happened yet. Now, so once you are in God's biblical will, guys, there's many options. What do you want to do? So for the guy that had the three options, the three different women that wanted to marry him, he, he obviously takes out the unbeliever. He's got two. He can now make a decision off preference. What do you want to do? So here's the deal. If you're looking for point three, and you might be going like, why can you say this? Why, why would you even, how can, how can you say he can make a decision off preference? Here's why. Because the Bible is sufficient. The Bible is authoritative. The Bible has spoken on his options. The Bible has spoken that he must, in my illustration, must box out the unbeliever. All right, cross that one off. 
So now he's in God's biblical will. And get this, when you are in God's biblical will, whatever decision you make will be the right decision. Why can I say that? Because if his Bible is sufficient as it's claimed to be, authoritative as it's claimed to be, and has spoken what it needs to speak, then once you've gotten all the unbiblical options off the table and you're just with the biblical options now, now we come to the fact of, is God sovereign? Yes. So that means, in that moment, the decisions you make, that'll be exactly what God wanted. And you can walk away confident in the decisions that you've made, not having to doubt. If the Bible is sufficient and he is sovereign, then you're going to be okay. You'll make the right decision. So the guy who has the two girls... Which is probably a horrible illustration, right? But, I mean, don't press it too far. Um, you know, I know most of you guys. I'm fairly confident none of you guys in here had such options in life. Sorry, that wasn't me. I wasn't trying to be mean with that. I'm just a truth teller, okay? Once you've opted out all the unbiblical... Listen, if God's, sovereign, if, if God's word is the guiding, the guiding source, then you, this guy now... And my illustration can make a decision in whichever girl he chooses who's a follower of Jesus and loves him and commits to the covenant right. Like, that's, he's going to make the right decision. No wrong decision we made at this point. Because God is sovereign over that. And whatever that man chooses in that moment is what God has decreed for the future. We call it God's decreed of will, what he's decreed in the future. Now, get this. I don't know God's decreed will. Don't have that much sovereignty. But I do know this. If I am clearly in God's biblical will, whatever decision I make, I can make because he's sovereign, knowing the decision I make is his decreed will. Let me go back to the, but Cindy and myself. There was no reason, um, there was no unbiblical reason in Cindy and I getting married, creating covenant. And when we said, I, but I couldn't theologically say Cindy is God's decreed will before it ever happened. Because I don't have that kind of purview. But all I'm responsible for my part, get this, all I'm responsible is to discern God's biblical will. That's all, that's all I can do. God's sovereign will, that's out past me. God's, what has God decreed for the future, that's out past me. That's not, in my, that's not my lane. So all I do is discern God's biblical will, and then I can now make preference. And of course I wanted to marry this, marry this smoking hot woman over here. Why not? Am I allowed to say that? I did anyways. That's okay. They're going to do a 10-second delay on me if I do anything wrong anyways, right, for recording. I wanted to. And thus, I didn't know she was God's decreed will before I said I do, but she was God's decreed will for me. And I could walk confidently and boldly. Now, guess what? I'm past the fact now. We're going on 20 years of marriage. If someone were to say, are you sure that Cindy was God's decreed will for your life? I would go, yeah, because it happened. We said, I do. God's sovereign over it. Yes. There's no margin for me to even doubt that. Are you understanding what I'm saying? If you're in God's biblical will, you'll always be perfectly in his decreed will for your life. Listen to me again. If you're in God's biblical will, you'll always be right where you need to be in his decreed will for your life. You don't have to guess You don't have to sit there and go, oh, what if I make the wrong decision? If you're in God's biblical will, you won't make a wrong decision. You won't. Now you can choose off preference. Now, 
let me kind of lay this out to you. When I say preference, that doesn't mean we strip out some of the internal things that a person does when they go for preference, which means this. Let's go back to the guy who had three different girls. He boxed out the unbeliever. He's got two believers. It would be good for that guy as a part of his preference to ask the Lord for wisdom in his choosing. It would be good for that guy to consult his friends that love the Lord and get wise counsel. It would be good for him to examine any idols of his heart for, for what he chooses. It would be good for him to come to James 1.5 and ask for wisdom. Although the context of James 1, when you ask for wisdom, is actually revolving more around persecution. But it's an it's a applicable principle. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, then it will be given to him. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. So let him ask the Lord, trust that the Lord will give him wisdom, and then he can make a decision knowing that God will lead him in those preferences. The decision he makes in God's biblical will, God will lead him in those preferences. And he can make the decision between those two in my little illustration between these two believing girls. If you're in God's biblical will, you will always be in God's decreed will. And thus, it simplifies things in your life. Now, here's what some people say. Okay, you're telling me people can make decisions off preference. Preference that has consulted the Lord, asked for wise counsel, examined heart idols. But, but Nick, what about the peace of God? Because I was raised up in church, and what we were told is when you have a decision like this guy who, okay, he's gotten, he's, he's marked off the unbelieving girl. He's got two believing girls. I've been told, Nick, all my years of good, solid evangelical upbringing, this guy needs to pray and listen to hear for that still, small voice of God or this, this, this gut-feeling peace from God, and then he'll know which of these two believing girls he should marry. And what I've been told, Nick, growing up is, like, this guy better not get that wrong because he's going to marry, he could marry the wrong girl. He needs to wait for that. He needs to get that really gut feeling. Does this, this sound familiar, that peace of God? And here's my next response for that person. That is not in the Bible. That's not a scriptural way to make decisions. Like, you keep waiting for that peace from God, and I can't promise you you're ever going to get it. I can't promise you this, that... If there's a decision God wants you to make when you're in his biblical will, he will clearly influence your preference. He will clearly guide and direct, and you can be confident. But I am not confident of this idea of this internal gut feeling that you've got to have. And don't you mess it up. Don't you mess it up because you're going to mess up your life. Now, here's what people do. Look in Philippians chapter 4. People a lot of times will go to Philippians 4 and go, Nick, I've got scripture to back my thought. Nick, I, I go to Philippians 4, 7. Nick, it says a peace of God. It talks about that. For Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. And the peace of God which, pass, which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Ha, 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 Nick. Here's your verse. This verse says that God will give you a peace to make decisions. And your little illustration between the three different women, God will give that guy peace between Christian A or Christian B, and he better not mess it up. The only thing I would say is, Read the context. That has nothing to do with making decisions in Philippians 4. It's actually talking about having anxiety. It's actually talking about having anxiety, bringing it to the Lord, being thankful to the Lord in that moment, and that letting the peace of God that passes all understanding guard your hearts and minds. It's talking about God's peace coming over to fight anxiety. 
not decision-making. So when you get between two biblical rights, the decision you make will be the right decision. If you're in God's biblical will, you will be in his, what? Decreed will. You can now make a decision off preference, knowing that if there is any maneuvering, if there's a, this still small voice or peace thing, I would not depend on that. But do I believe that God is sovereign, that he will direct you to what he wants? Yes. And will you always know that? I don't know, but I do know this. When you're making the decision off preference in God's biblical will, God's guiding that whole entire thing. He is sovereign over that whole entire thing. Adam and Eve, don't eat of this tree. You can eat of all these trees. Adam and Eve had so much preference to go about that. And was God sovereign over all of that? Absolutely. So at this point, some would say, Nick, what about waiting on the Lord? Because I've been told to just wait on the Lord. Like, wait, wait on the Lord. Don't make a decision. I would say this. One, um, Romans 14, if you read the last verse, whatever is not of faith is sin. Although we're, we're, we're speaking of individual conscience, I, I would say this. If the guy gets between girl A and B in my little illustration, you know, I hate using this illustration, but it's the only way I can get it, you know, girl A and, and B, he, like, if he can't make a decision in that moment, then yeah, he shouldn't make a decision. Like, it's called the holding principle. If you can't make a decision in full faith, then don't make the decision. Sometimes you have to hold. Sometimes I've been, I've been able to mark off in my life all the unbiblical options, and I have several right options, but... I just don't have a preference. Like, I don't, you know, I, I'm just not sure. And so I'll hold. It's called the holding principle. You can do that sometimes. Now, some people would go, that's the waiting. You've got to wait on God for his still small voice to speak to you. And I would go, once again, that's not something that I can support by Scripture. Now, because when the Bible talks about waiting, waiting is not this, like, well, wait on the Lord. This is what we often think, like, I'm waiting on God. I'm not going to make a decision. I'm not going to, you know, when you're in biblical, in his biblical will. But when you read about waiting, like read Psalm 27. David talks about waiting on the Lord. Read everything in that Psalm. Then the last verse, he talks about waiting on the Lord twice. And watch what he's doing the whole entire time. David's not, when he says waiting, he's not thinking this. That word waiting has this idea of hopeful expectation. It means that, David's not doing this, waiting on God. David's like, that's by Tim Tebow, just for you guys, right? Happy Super Bowl. You know, he's praying. I mean, he's, he's seeking the Lord. He's waiting on the Lord. He's hoping in the Lord. It's not just sitting back. I mean, read Psalm 27. He is actively worshiping, talking about worshiping in the Lord's, in the Lord's tabernacle. I mean, like he's getting after Jesus. So... When it comes to making that decision, be careful with this wait on the Lord thing of like, I don't want to, I'm waiting on the Lord, so I don't want to make a decision. Well, if you can't make a decision in faith, then, then fine. But if you're at the point of biblical rights and you have a preference for a direction and you've talked to friends, you've prayed through it, you've asked God for wisdom, and you know he's sovereign, you can make a decision. You can make a decision. And if you're kind of like, well, I don't... I, I'm at that place of, I don't have full faith in the decision I'm going to make. Well, then wait on the Lord. But when I say wait, that doesn't mean just sit down. That means praise him, worship him, disciple, like hope in him, go after him. And then in the midst of that, God will start to clarify your preferences. Now, we'll end with this. 
Here's the conundrum. Go over to Genesis chapter 50. Discerning God's will, Genesis 50. Now let's get caught up and we'll end this. Let's get caught up with this one. Genesis 50 verse 20. I've told you, if you're in God's biblical will, you'll always be in his what? Decreed will, all right? And you don't have to worry about his decreed will. You just got to worry about the biblical part. You're in that, you're going to be fine, friends. You're going to make the right decisions. Now, what do we do with Genesis 50, 20? That we're so, we've talked the last several weeks. Remember everything that's happened to Joseph? His brothers sold him into slavery. Potiphar's wife framed him for rape. The cupbearer forgot about him for two years. All these bad things that happened to Joseph. Now we look at that. Remember, it looks here in the text, it says... He says to his friends, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So the only deduction we have to make from that is, wait a minute. Nick, you told me if someone's in God's biblical will. I don't think it was very biblical what Joseph's brothers did to him. I don't think it's very biblical what Potiphar's wife did. I don't think it's very biblical what the cupbearer did. Nick, explain that one with your cute little, you're in God's biblical will, you'll be in God's decreed will. Explain that one. Okay. Actually, I'm not. I'm really done. Worship team, why don't y'all come on up here? That one now seems more difficult in my mind. No. Um, Here's how it works. God is sovereignly accomplishing his will no matter what. You can't get in the way. Like, you read, read Genesis, and look how man tried to mess everything up, tracking towards the messianic line. But God overrules the foolishness of men. But here's what I would say. With his brothers, Potiphar's wife, the whole, all these people, these people, what theologians would say, they fit into something called God's permissive will. I'm sometimes uncomfortable even saying that word, but in God's permissive will, meaning this. God's not the issuer and author of sin, but yet, according to the nature of these people's will, They chose evilness against Joseph. And God sovereignly had that as a part of his plan. At no point was it okay for what they did to Joseph. But even what they did to Joseph was a part of God's sovereign will. Now you may be thinking on the other side, well then great. Guess what, Nick? That means I can sin and do whatever I want. And that God's just going to be, you know, chained up and, you know... Life's just going to work out right, because it did. I mean, what about Joseph's brothers? Yeah, when you read the story, do you not see how vexed his brothers were about everything they'd done to him, the guilt that was on him? How bad was the guilt? The guilt was so bad that they'd already lived with Joseph for 17 years in Egypt. Their dad dies, and then what are they doing in Genesis 50? They're going to, the, they're going to Joseph and like, dude, don't kill us, man. Uh, dad said, uh, uh, don't hurt us. You know, they, they still don't even believe they're forgiven yet. So I'll say this. You and I are not going to stop God's sovereign will. We're not going to. But you do not want to go for things outside of his biblical will. Why? Because it will be bad for you. Like, don't think. You, just because God is sovereign and man's sin is not going to get in the way of his sovereign plan doesn't mean it works out well for you. You understand that, right? It doesn't mean that those decisions you make don't have further cataclysms. I mean... What Joseph's brothers did also had a profound impact on their dad. Others suffered because of their sin. 
So from our perspective, here's all you had and I have to worry about. Not all we got to do is this. What is God's biblical will? Discern God's biblical will. Put your nose in the book. Know God's biblical will. If you're online and you're like, what is God's will for my life? Well, if you're not saved, I guarantee you God's will today is repent, become a believer. That's God's biblical will for you today. For us, it's then when you're in his biblical will, wisdom, prayer, consulting counsel, you make a preference call and your preferences will be in what God has sovereignly decreed the best for your life. And now you can make decisions and not be confused about life. Worship team, make your way up here, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a time of taking the Lord's Supper and a time to edify the body. We'll have the mic here ready. We're going to sing a song that I love. It's called Behold Our God. We sang a couple weeks ago. Let me tell you, the first time I ever heard this song was 10 years ago, Behold Our God. This is back in the day when I had an iPod, like the um, little, like I, the iPod mini, or, you know. That, you know, you kind of had the circles. Anybody remember that? The kind of little circle thing? Well, forget the circle. I didn't even use it. I just put this song on repeat and sang it. And here's what I was overwhelmed with. This God is sovereign, holy, and other. This God cannot be changed. And this is the kind of God I want to worship. And here's what's so amazing, guys. Oh, we have such things so brilliant. Because of his word, guys, you and I can just make decisions. And then after we make those, I mean, we can get in God's biblical will. Then we can make a decision. And then what do we do? We just behold our God. That's the great thing about when, you're in, when you know you're in his decreed will now. You can just behold our God. You can make those decisions and you can just behold your God. And what's great is that also leads you right to beholding the greatest thing that, that man has in his hands is the gospel message. And right in your hands today. Let's stand to our feet. Sing about the greatness of God, his sovereignty. And let it lead us to the foot of the cross once again as we take communion, as we give you a a chance to edify each other here in a little bit. Lord, I'm so thankful for your word. It's worth more than a Netflix binge. It's worth more than scrolling through mindless dribble on social media. It is worth the pleasure of our life investing in. Lord, let our people online here, anybody that may be out here hearing this, let them dust off the word, commit themselves daily to the word so that we can be in God's biblical will, so we'll be right where we need to be in his decreed will that will be best for our life. Help us in that. Let us be bold with, with your word. Bless our time of singing, communion, and edifying. In Jesus' name, amen.